Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The COVID-19 pandemic forced many American businesses to close their doors or shift their operating models. Early in the pandemic, we saw entrepreneurs rushing to meet demand for face masks, hand sanitizer, and more. But what's the big picture? How has American entrepreneurship fared during the pandemic? And how might the economic challenge of this health crisis affect broader business trends in the U.S. economy? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by John Halterwanger. John is the Distinguished University Professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Maryland. Last year, he was awarded the Global Entrepreneurship Research Award for his statistical work in studying firm dynamics. John, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Overall, how have entrepreneurs, potential entrepreneurs, I guess, been responding to the, to the recession and the, uh, you know, the economic tumult of this pandemic? Well, they, they responded in a surprising way. Uh, in the Great Recession, uh, new business applications and startups plummeted. And early in the pandemic, we saw evidence that the same thing was happening. Uh, in the first, uh, basically, uh, uh, six to eight weeks. And then starting last June, there's been a surge in new business applications and new business applications, both for likely new employers and likely new non-employers. And the surge was especially high last summer. It tapered off a bit in the fall, but in 2021, it surged again. And so uh, essentially seven of the highest months ever in terms of the data are between July 2020 and now. What do you think explains that observation? I think we're still trying to figure that out because partly because we were surprised, but we, I, th I think we actually have a reasonably good handle on what's happening. P part of it is the detailed industry data that's been released. And the detailed industry data shows that the applications are coming in precisely where you would, new businesses are forming to enable various kinds of remote activity, whether it's um, remote activity between businesses and consumers or between businesses and workers. And so a, a full third of the surge in applications is in the industry uh, called non-store retailers, which is essentially e-commerce. And uh, other sectors that have also surged are, are the areas where you would expect there to be uh, support uh, activity for online activity and online retailers, for example, like trucking and warehousing. We, we've also seen a huge surge in professional scientific and technical services. That's, that's an important part of high-tech activity with lots of uh, computer design and software programming and, and the like. And so uh, th those are, again, places where you, you might ex expect there to be a surge because there's new market opportunities to do things, to do business differently. And, and I think this, the second part that, that fits in is I think there's increasing evidence that we're headed to, towards a new normal. And so the new normal will not be everybody going in uh, five days a week uh, to some central location. It'll be more hybrid activity, lots of remote activity. 
And so uh, in, in many ways, the entrepreneurs of, since July have been anticipating this restructuring. I think they've been both trying to facilitate the, the remote activity during the pandemic, but there are market opportunities for post-pandemic as well. I find that super interesting because at least, you know, as, as I see it, there's sort of two issues. One, just sort of the quantity that we um, you know, saw with this huge economic shock, which I'm sure there were a lot of businesses you know, going out of business and people losing their jobs. Then there's also the kind of businesses people chose um, uh, to start. You know, my, my question you know, throughout 2020 is, were we sort of freezing the economy and then we're gonna, it was going to kind of go back to the way it was? Or would we see, I don't know, some sort of creative destruction where we would see new businesses, but new kinds of businesses that were being dynamic and responding to a different uh, circumstance? So uh, it, sounds like it, it sounds like it's the latter point where things are changing. I, I think that's right. And it, in some respects, what we're seeing is an acceleration of things that were pre-pandemic. And retail trade's the perfect example of this. It was already the case over the last decade that e-commerce was rising and bricks and mortar retail was losing uh, market share. And that's just changed dramatically. And I don't think we'll ever go back to the same kind of uh, bricks and mortar retailing. When I talk to industry experts in retail, it sounds like bricks and mortar is gonna go away, but what's kind of interesting is that the successful retailers, the existing retailers have pivoted so that their, their stores now serve multiple activities. They literally are, like they used to be places that individuals come to shop, but they're also becoming fulfillment centers for, for uh, deliveries. And they've also become pickup spots for, for uh, online buying and then, and then pickup. Uh, so, you know, given that amount of restructuring and that change of things, I think that, that, that one is, it, is the businesses that, that, that have been hit the hardest, I think, are actually the small businesses in, in places like uh, retail and food and accommodations that, that um, did not have online activity and, and, and weren't able to do this kind of pivoting. And so it, it, this is creative destruction. There's some painful parts of this, as you, as you noted, which is we don't, we don't even have fully the data yet on, on all the business closings that have, that have, uh, have uh, um, occurred because of the pandemic. But, but indeed, part of this is, uh, and particularly in retail trade and food and accommodations, we're, do, we're doing things differently. And so I think both existing businesses that have pivoted well are doing things differently. And these new businesses are coming in both, both literally uh, facilitating the pivoting of the existing businesses, but also uh, doing, doing things differently themselves. I imagine part of it, again, is people kind of seeing opportunities. But do you think part of it did have to do sort of with the nature of the downturn that it seemed like it would be kind of a a short thing and it was the world maybe wasn't falling apart like the financial crisis it's sort of the nature of the downturn people think that it would be sort of shorter and maybe i don't know maybe that made them more optimistic that they could start something up and it, and it would be successful and the economy would be good around them again i think we're, we we won't fully know yet until we see how this all yeah. shakes out yeah uh, i i actually think there's a chance that the businesses that started up last summer may be different than the businesses that are starting up this spring. And it's closely related to what you just said. Last summer, you know, I think the uncertainty was enormous, but, but it's clear given all the lockdowns and shutdowns that there were opportunities for stepping in and doing things um, 
temporarily, right? So, so in many ways, I think they were opportunistic necessity um, uh, kinds of businesses. So we, we need to remember there was both a surge in, in, in businesses, applications that were headed to be new employers, which often takes at least some resources. You don't open up a business and hire people unless you've got some resources. And also a huge surge in applications for what we call non-employers, basically self-employment activity, but where you needed an employer identification number. And I think particularly in the latter case, some of that it was uh, fueled by uh, individuals who actually had, had lost their jobs or, um, or, or, or um, uh, again, given the downturn, there were just market opportunities that people saw that were temporary. Whereas in this spring, I think what's striking, and again, we don't fully, fully know yet because we'll have to sort of see how this all shakes out, is uh, we're seeing a surge again during a period of time when the labor market is recovering very rapidly. So if you're an individual thinking about, well, gee, what should I be doing with my, with my career, with my time, lots of wage and salary uh, opportunities, both of you, whether you had a job or not, you could, lots of opportunities. But I'm going to say in spite of that, or you might say because of that, there's also been a surge in uh, new business startups. So the question is whether the, uh, whether the businesses that started last summer were the, I'll call it the necessity, transitory, let, when I say take advantage of the fact that there were uh, lots of needs in the economy that were very pandemic related and whether the businesses this spring are a little bit more forward looking and, and maybe even persist a little longer. And, we have we don't have any evidence at all to be able to, to distinguish this at this point. What do you think about the impact of the uh, payroll protection plan? Uh, how that may have affected the uh, entrepreneurship and and the and and the startup sector? I actually think it worked against this because because the PPP program uh, was for existing businesses, and I've looked pretty carefully at the PPP program. Uh, the, you, you really needed to document that you had business activity uh, as of mid-February 2020. And, and these are all new business applications starting last July. Uh, almost all the PPP loans went to employer businesses, a, a relatively small fraction, about, about a seventh went to non-employer businesses. So there's some possibility that, uh, that if you got a PPP loan, so the causality may make actually go the way, you got a loan, turns out the monitoring activities for it, you, you might've had an incentive if you were a self-employed individual to go apply for an EIN because then you could get a business bank account and then you could actually, and business bank accounts do require employer identification number. Um, you, you, you might've uh, gone through this application process, but that was a relatively small fraction of, of, of the overall PPP loans and not anywhere close to the number of new applications uh, for non-employers. So. So actually, you know, the economic theory says if you actually support incumbents, one of the things it does is it reduces exit. And that was the intent of the PPP program because there, right. you know, the, 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 there was lots of discussion. I think, I think uh, appropriate discussion that this was transitory. Businesses that were otherwise viable, they were viable in February 2020. That's sort of the big question and, and likely would be viable uh, post-pandemic. Uh, didn't it make sense to, to perhaps provide the liquidity to, to allow those businesses to persist? But when you do that, if you indeed uh, support incumbents, you're gonna, you're gonna, you, you are going to reduce exit, but you're also gonna reduce entry. So I think actually this surge is actually remarkable in spite of the PPP program. 
Well, that's sort of very interesting, um, uh, you know, sort of trade-off you've identified that if everything was going to get frozen in place, then, you, then maybe you really want to focus on keeping those otherwise viable businesses uh, intact. But if that economy is going to change in some key ways, then you also want to make sure that you know, labor and capital is being used as efficiently as possible in this altered new economy. Uh, and in that case, you want that creative destruction to happen. Do you think we just about got it right with, with this uh, payroll plan and other efforts, uh, you know, given that dynamic? It, it would be interesting as we learn more to understand where these new businesses fit relative to the uh, exiting businesses. So let's think about our restaurants. So there may have been restaurants that that in spite of PPP just could not stay open. It just did not make sense given the burden of the pandemic. And, and even if you got the loans, the, the question is how, how could you continue with the limited activity? If mostly what we see is we basically see the same kind of restaurants pop up in the same locations uh, as, as uh, pre-pandemic, then, then in many ways, this was probably wasteful creative destruction, right? We were just you, you shut down a business and you opened up something else and you, uh, there was an enormous amount of disruption. You spent a lot of resources uh, basically uh, doing the same thing that you were doing back in February, 2020. And, and, I, and I don't think we know how many such, you know, I'll sort of say literally re replacement businesses there are. But, right. but I, I think there's at least two other categories of businesses. One are the kind of businesses where they're, they're literally doing something different and that the business model is different. It's, it's more remote activity oriented and, and, and I'll say more, more flexible. Another one that I, that I think is actually also not well understood yet is uh, I, I, I do think the daytime population, working age population is not gonna be spending their time in the same locations that they were in February, 2020. We're gonna be more spatially uh, spread out Partly, you know, commuting is going to be down. And so there's a whole set of businesses that were basically supporting the fact that there was in, in, in downtown areas, particularly in cities like New York and Boston and San Francisco and Chicago, where there was an enormous influx of activity during the day. Uh, and, 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 and a number of businesses were, uh, were there to support them. The, the, the lunchtime places, dry cleaners and uh, other kinds of support, uh, gyms and other kinds of activities. So, so it very well might be that what we're gonna be seeing is, well, we're gonna see those businesses, uh, many of them have, will close down because it, we, the needs for such businesses aren't the same, but they'll have shifted out to other locations. And so that spatial reallocation, um, you, 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 might, you might say, well, gee, that just seems like replacement businesses as well, but not necessarily because that, that's actually, uh, is facilitating the spatial reallocation. And, and indeed, if what we've figured out is that we can actually do what we used to do at least as well or even better with, with the changing spatial activity, then indeed these new businesses may facilitate it. And as I said, you know, there's the middle category I think maybe we're especially interested in, which is the set of businesses that, that really are doing things in such fundamentally different ways that you know, five years from now we'll go, whoa, the, the, the economy is operating in a completely different way and these are the new high growth businesses, right? So we, you, know, you, you wanna kind of go back to the 1990s when we had a tremendous restructuring associated with the high tech sector. You know, the companies like 
Microsoft and Apple and, and, and Amazon, they were not household names in the first, you know, first half a dozen years, right? They were, they were struggling. Actually, rev, almost all of them started very small, under 10 people, and, and then, of course, have become just the mega businesses of today. And so we, we just don't have, this is the crystal ball we don't have, is, is understanding, okay, which businesses are going to become the new superstar businesses of the future? And, and in part, uh, potentially induced by, um, induced by the pandemic. You know, I, you know, I sort of first became familiar with your work due to um, your sort of documentation of the, and, and discovery of this sort of pervasive decline in measures of business dynamism, um, you know, entrepreneurship, labor, you know, market fluidity. Those trends, what were what did they look like right before the pandemic? And do you have a feeling about what they'll look like down the road? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. And I've been thinking about it a lot, and I wish I had a, a, be- a better answer. So part of what I know is right before the pandemic, those trends were continuing. I think those were troubling trends for the US economy. The, the declining entrepreneurship, declining fluidity meant we were a less, we were a less innovative uh, economy. There's lots of evidence that startups play an especially critical role in experimentation uh, and innovation. The dynamism is, it, and flexibility of the labor market is it's what's enabled us historically to absorb and, and change in the way that we do business. And I, and I think in the post-2000 period, the U.S. economy has not had that, uh, that dynamism and flexibility. So, you know, again, back in the, in the 1990s and even to, in the 1880s, 1980s, excuse me, is the U.S. economy, the U.S. Uh, policymakers would often say to Europe, you know, make your markets more flexible, make your labor markets more flexible, make your product markets more flexible, uh, and, and you'll be able to absorb uh, the kind of changes that are going on. And, and, and we would point to evidence that suggested we were able to accommodate um, all of the changes that were going on during that period. I think that we, we, we became much less able to do that. So all that was true. And so, so now we have this enormous uh, a downturn and, uh, and, and sort of changing activity. And, the, and so related to our earlier parts of our discussion, one is, is are we gonna see a temporary surge in dynamism and entrepreneurship that enables us to get to the to the new normal. I th- I think almost undoubtedly the answer to that question is yes. Then the question is, did, did this somehow unleash, you know, o- entrepreneurship uh, in a way that that will will start facilitating the kind of innovation that lots of people expected we might see from all the kinds of technological advances that we that we've seen over the last 10, 10 or fifteen years. Remember, there's a it's a big puzzle going on between the te- technological optimists who point at all the you know, developments in AI and automation and robotics um, and the like, uh, and, you know, and the fact that our, the, the, the little uh, oblongs that we carry in our pockets, these cell phones are just incredibly powerful and able to do so many things. But in spite of all that, uh, productivity growth has been just anemic uh, pre-pandemic. So, you know, I actually, uh, Chad Severson at Chicago said something along these lines. He, he was talking literally at a conference in honor of Akion and Howitt, who are, you know, pioneers on in, in creative destruction. And he, uh, he, he meant to say the following. She said, well, well, so, so, so maybe what the pandemic is going to be is a shot in the arm for entrepreneurship. And so the question is whether it's, it, it, did, it, did it stimulate 
the, you know, the, the, the kind of entrepreneurship that, that used to have an enormous payoffs uh, in, in, the, in the U.S. I, I think we just don't know the answer to that question as to whether this is going to be a transitory surge in dynamism entrepreneurship or have, we, have things changed in such a way uh, that, that uh, indeed we'll, we'll, we'll go back to the times when uh, we had this kind of dynamism and flexibility uh, that we used to have pre-2000. When you, when you are looking at these trends of startups sort of pre-pandemic, do those, do those trends include, again, what's happening in Silicon Valley? Because it seems like we've had a lot of successful startups and all the unicorns. Is the disappointing activity just sort of in smaller companies or does it also include sort of these high impact startups? So I think it does include the latter, but let me, let me start from a slightly different angle, which is what we... What we have seen is it, especially in the high tech sector, that productivity growth has been very low. Now, lots of people have pushed back, particularly folks from the Silicon Valley saying, we, we don't think you're measuring our contribution uh, 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 appropriately. And, and that debate's still going on. And, and, and so I'm at least sympathetic that that's, that measurement is really hard in terms of you know, what, what is the value added um, of, of all the things that we can do um, with these cell phones and the like in terms of how we manage our activities and so on and, and, and the consumption value of all those things. But, but in terms of the hard numbers, it's not just aggregate productivity that uh, has been slumping, but the high tech sector, which, and by that I mean both the IT, the IT intensive producing and using sectors, they, they were the ones that were behind the surge in productivity in the 1990s through the mid 2000s to 2005. And, and they're also the, exactly those sectors have had very slow productivity. So oftentimes when the folks from the Silicon Valley uh, hear my remarks about declining entrepreneurship, they say, no, no, okay, you're, you're talking about all the mom and pops. You're not talking about us. Right. And uh, we're doing just fine. And I say to them, okay, help me explain why the productivity growth is so low particularly in the post 2010 period in precisely the sectors that, that you're contributing to and that, and that was so high 10 or 15 years ago. So that's sort of one perspective is, okay, how do we explain the, the uh, productivity growth? The second thing is we have seen in the data. So, so some of the work that I've done is I said, okay, let's go look, look particularly at the high tech sectors. And, when, and, and one of the things that we've been struck by in the post 2000 period is uh, that high growth startups are have diminished in 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 the uh, in the high tech sector. Now, here's where it gets complicated. One way of, of putting it simply is, back in the 1990s, if you were if you were a high growth startup, you wanted to be the next Google. In fact, you were the next Google. Whereas as we move through the post 2000s, you wanted to be bought by Google. And so what we've seen is uh, in, in increased acquisitions going on by the by the big tech guys of businesses that that you uh, arguably would have shown up in the data as high growth employment and revenue businesses, but instead of going public and 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 really taking off because in, you know the, the, so going public is a uh, uh, is often associated with high growth, but it's it's not it's not uh, the, the causality is not going from going public to growth. It's oh if you're if you have an IPO, you're you're obviously a, a business that 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 has the potential to to do just amazing things, and you're looking for the resources to be able to to make that happen. So we've we've seen this shift away from 
uh, IPOs to acquisitions. This is a core part of the debate about what's going on with big tech right now is, are, are these acquisitions productivity enhancing or are these, or are these killer acquisitions, right? Or is this the big tech buying up these businesses and stifling? Then I come back to the productivity numbers. I say, well, if this was all good news, and, and it, was, it was actually the big tech guys taking advantage of the fact, you could tell this story, right? The big, taking advantage of the fact that they've got, they've got the global presence, they've got the network externalities to take advantage of. And so it makes sense in this, in this big tech world that if somebody's got a good new idea, you know, go on to the Google platform, go on to the Facebook platform, go on to the Apple platform and so on, uh, that, that you could make that, that, that case. And, and I, I then say to myself, well, if it, was, if it was all good news, why is productivity so low? So that, that's why I'm skeptical that there has, you know, again, that, that, that all, all, has been, all has been well out of the high tech sector, because of the, mostly because of the productivity numbers. Let me finish up with a question I know you were expecting. Uh, I work at a think tank. Uh, we develop policy proposals. I'm not going to ask you for a, a 25 point plan to boost startups and dynamism. But do you, do you have an do you have an idea or two for for policymakers? Well, I, I, I think it's it's more of a, a a general view, and then maybe there's some specifics that go with it. And that is, and you know, it's it's related to our even our discussion of the of the PPP program, which was again, I don't want to be critical of that program per se. Is oftentimes policy is all about incumbents, right? Is it's okay? What what do we need to uh, spur growth and innovation if we, you know, uh, for, for incumbents. And so I, I, I think we often don't think enough about uh, the, the businesses that aren't there and, and that could be there. And so I, I, I think that that just in general, uh, you, you, you need someone to be an advocate for, uh, for, for uh, new and, and young businesses. So some of the ideas that are out there and actually even showed up in the executive order a couple of weeks ago, I think there's, there's potential support for both for dynamism and for entrepreneurship, non-competes, occupational licensing, uh, things of that sort, I think are, are areas that um, uh, it, it could be, could, there could be improvements. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, I- immigration reform, particularly at the, at the high end, uh, the, the high skill level, this is a, this is something that's often been discussed, but I think I think it's really really important. You know, the United States is a magnet for the best and the brightest to come to get graduate education in in, in all fields, but particularly the STEM fields. And 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 we ought to we ought to keep as many of those uh, uh, highly trained individuals um, uh, in, in the United States in terms of in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, per- permitting them to stay and, and actually uh, thrive, both to start businesses, but also to, to to bring their expertise. So, so, so basically, the point is, is to is to have a mindset that um, let, let let's have an advocate uh, in in policy for new and young businesses. And 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 quite seriously, I, I in many ways, I think the Small Business Administration could do more good and would do more good if it was the Young Business Administration rather than the Small Business Administration. My guest today has been John Haltewanger. John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much. 